It's easy to talk about the easy stuff. Work. Sports. But sometimes, we need to talk about the hard stuff. The difficult questions that linger in our minds, but we're afraid to ask. Is there truly a way to know right from wrong? Do advances in science undermine the authority of the Bible? Does God have anything to say about my depression? Does God hate me because I'm gay? Because I'm transgender? Is it just lights out when we die? Or is there something more? For too long, the church has avoided difficult conversations. As well, they're difficult. We're ready to change that. The afterlife, mental health, evolution, sexuality. This is a conversation about what God really has to say about these topics. Buckle up, this might get awkward. Well, one thing real quickly in terms of family business that we need to deal with is that on September 30th, that's two weeks from today, we have our annual uh, meeting of ministry partners. What we do in that environment is we worship together, we pray together, full worship teams there, and we just thank God as a church for what he's done over the past year, and we look forward to the vision that he has for us in the coming year. We vote to affirm elders, vote to affirm budget, those types of things. And so September 30th at 6 p.m., mark your calendars, uh, make sure that you're here. For, for those of you who are ministry partners, that's just a, those folks who have made a formal commitment to Bayview Glen Church, you're kind of expected to be there. Uh, for those of you who are investigating ministry partners, and have considered making a formal commitment to this body, uh, the annual ministry partners meeting would be a great place for you to be. But it's welcome, uh, open to everyone to come and pray and sing and worship and hear about the vision that God has for us over the coming year. A couple of documents that we'd love you to review beforehand are available at bayviewglen.org A-M-M-P. It's right there on the uh, front page of the website. There's a banner there. There's a financial document there. We're totally transparent in our financial dealings. Uh, there's also a, a year in review and a form for you to submit questions in advance so that uh, elders and staff can prepare thoughtful answers and, and answer them uh, either publicly or privately. And so uh, that's all up there online. If you are, are not a digital person, if you can't access that online, we do have hard copies right outside those doors to the left at the registration tables today. But don't take one just because you need one or, or just because you want one. Take one only if you need one. We're trying to save trees and money. So uh, access those documents online and also uh, submit your questions as well for the annual ministry partners meeting on September 30th right here in this room at 6 p.m. This is going to be a difficult topic this morning, so I would invite you to pray with me. Let's ask the Spirit to move. God, thank you for your presence here in this place. Thank you for the wisdom and grace that you extend, God. Uh, your word says that if any of us lack wisdom, we can call on you that gives us wisdom without finding fault. But when we call, we've got to be people of faith that are trust that you will give to us, not people that are blown and tossed around by the waves of the sea. And so, God, we trust this morning that as we ask for wisdom, you will give us that. In Christ's name, the people of God with enthusiasm said, amen. I've got a little riddle for you to start this morning. Uh, a man dies, goes to heaven, gets through the pearly gates by St. Peter. That's not biblical. It's just for the sake of the riddle. And he gets into heaven, and he's a little bit surprised to find out that everyone's naked. Everyone in heaven's naked. And he thinks to himself, you know what? Uh, before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. So that kind of makes sense. And there's no lust in heaven. So that kind of makes sense. So he gets over it pretty quickly. And what he sees is just a mass of people, a sea of humanity, people of different ages and ethnicities 
ethnicities and shapes, sizes and colors. I mean, it just becomes this nebulous blob of just humanity and no face is, is, is the same, but they all kind of look the same to him because it's just a mass of millions and millions of people. And he sees this couple over in the corner and he walks up to them and he says, you must be Adam and you must be Eve. Here's my question. Don't answer it out loud if you know. How did he know? How did he know that that was Adam and Eve? Don't answer it out loud. The answer to this riddle and more coming later in the sermon, so make sure you pay attention. I've been asked this morning to talk about science in the Bible. I've been asked to talk about science in the Bible. And what we decided is, go back one slide, what we decided is that when we've got opposing opinions, strong emotions, and a high-stakes conversation, things can get really awkward, like Michael Scott awkward. And when when it comes to science in the Bible, we do have opposing opinions, strong emotions, and it is a high-stakes conversation. I was raised in a situation and in in an era uh, with the people surrounding me kind of hinted, or insinuated or even explicitly said that it was really science versus the Bible. One of them was trying to defeat the other. If science was right, the Bible was a book of myths, and if the Bible was right, then science was out to lunch. And those were competing fields of study. But what we are going to suggest this morning is what Albert Einstein said. He said this, that uh, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. So if we have scientific discovery without faith, it doesn't give us any wheels, any legs. It doesn't move us anywhere. But if we've got faith without science, we can't observe and understand the world around us. And so what those fields are, science and the Bible, they're not competing fields of study. What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that they're not parallel fields of study. Rather, they are inextricably bound fields of study. Each one illuminates the other and helps us understand God more and more and stand in awe of who he is and what he's done when we understand both science and the Bible. And when people talk about science and the Bible, by and large, in my personal experience, what they're talking about is the origins debate. I don't know if you've uh, come to know this in your own personal conversation. People say, well, science and the Bible, you know, they disagree with one another. It's like point out something. Well, most of the time they'll talk about that specific example of the creation account in Genesis chapter 3 and say that the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and scientific research butt heads. They compete. They don't agree with one another. Therefore, I have to jettison the scripture as a book of myths. So what we're going to do this morning is address the origins debate as a case study. And what we're going to do in this case study is pull out some large principles, hopefully pretty memorable principles, that you can apply to other conversations that you might have and other things you might think about or biblical passages you might come across when you think science and the Bible might be at odds with one another. So does everybody understand what we're doing? This is the case study. But the big principles we're going to pull out, you can apply to any biblical passage you would like to do. I will warn you in advance, for those of you who are here for the first time, I move pretty fast when it comes to sermons. Today, it's going to be about twice as fast as normal. You will absolutely be drinking from a fire hose. There will be a lot of information coming at you in a very short time. So don't try to write all of this down. I will give you the things to write down if you would like to write things down, but you've got to stick with me. And I want to talk to three different types of people this morning. I want to talk to those who have already decided what you think about the origins debate. 
Some of you have come into this place and you've already decided that you are an atheistic evolutionary theorist. Okay? Some of you have already come into this place and you've decided you're a young earth six-day literal. You, you've decided that you're some point in between there. And for those of you who have already decided where you're at, here's what I want to suggest to you today. That if you adopt an orthodox Christian, historically biblical view of, your, uh, of the origins debate and it's causing division between someone in the body of Christ and you, then you need to repent and stop it. Because just because it's your view doesn't mean it's the only biblical view. There are multiple views that are biblical here when it comes to those who have decided. I want to present a couple of those views to you this morning to help you understand that. Uh, for some of you, you are undecided, and perhaps you are undecided when it comes to the origins debate because you're in a space like I was some time ago where you think if you're a person of faith and if you research science, it's going to prove that the Bible is a bunch of myths. Okay? That's not going to happen. Or you might be a person that's uh, into science and into discovery and that kind of thing. And you think that if you explore Jesus, you're going to end up like living in a bunker somewhere with a bunch of like canned goods waiting on the end of the world. Okay, that's not going to happen either. Those two fields, again, are not competing. They're not even parallel. They're inextricably bound. We can be both intellectually honest and scientific and people of deep, deep faith in God and his son, Jesus. I want to give you those options this morning. Morning. Third, I want to talk to those of you who are skeptical, skeptical of the Christian faith. And the reason that you may be skeptical, there may be a number of reasons, but one of those reasons might be you think that being a Christian means you think the earth is 10,000 years old and God created it in six literal 24-hour days. Yes, that is a biblical view that falls within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. However, there are other interpretations of Genesis 1 through 3 in the creation account that, that, that uh, uh, different views, different theories, different interpretations. I want to present those to you this morning so that you might be able to say, you know what, maybe I could investigate the claims of Christian faith. Maybe I prematurely uh, jettison that from my life uh, and maybe I could investigate those a little bit more. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a view that most people associate with scientific discovery and scientific theory. That view is called naturalistic evolution. You also might hear it uh, described as materialistic evolution. Naturalistic evolution and materialistic evolution would suggest this. That everything that we can see and prove and discover goes into our worldview. Science, fact, what is observable and provable is all that there is. Hence the name materialistic evolution. All that we can see is material or all that exists are material things. There is nothing immaterial, nothing supernatural. So the world got here by way of evolution and by the Big Bang Theory. That would be the naturalistic evolutionary view and it's almost Almost all the time, it's atheistic. Occasionally, it's an agnostic view. Unfortunately, the folks on the naturalistic evolution side of things have so filled up their worldview with the water of fact and what is observable and provable that when you introduce something that's not observable, like the existence of God or Something that's not provable, like is light a particle or 
Is it a wave? Well, it's kind of both, and we don't really know. Or when you introduce the supernatural or the miraculous or beauty in the world, those things disrupt that view so much so the view stops to what? Hold water, right? When you introduce these things to this view, it becomes untenable very, very quickly because it is filled to the brim with things that are only observable in the world, only the material things in the world. The pros of this view is that they take scientific discovery very, very seriously. The cons of this view are that they exclude anything supernatural, miraculous, or even anything that's, uh, that there's, there's no ability to say from a naturalistic evolutionary perspective, I, I don't know. Nobody can say, I don't know here, because we can know all things is what these guys would affirm. Now, one thing that we said last week as we started talking about awkward conversations is that we will find common ground with anyone who has a different view than us. And we do have, from a Christian worldview perspective, common ground with the naturalistic evolutionist. The common ground is this, and it's stated in a scientific journal. Scientists and theologians have written eloquently about their awe and wonder at the history of the universe and life on this planet. So both the naturalistic evolutionist and scientist and the person of faith would stand back from the universe and, and be in awe of its majesty and intricacy. We just disagree as to how and why it got here. So that is the naturalistic evolutionary view. Though we have something in common, it's decidedly not a Christian worldview because it eliminates the possibility for theism and the supernatural. So here's the question. When we read things along this line, when we read people like Richard Dawkins and Chris Hitchens who would espouse this view and they would suggest not only that you know, religion is wrong, they would even espouse that religion is a dangerous notion, that religion is destructive in the world. That's difficult for me. Because you have to say that Mother Teresa was a dangerous person. That's hard. That's hard. Or when we read people like Stephen Jay Gould, who is agnostic, who would hold to this view. How do we interpret that as Christians from a Christian worldview? Well, I think the Proverbs has something to say about that. Solomon writes this. The mocker seeks wisdom and finds none. But knowledge comes easily to the, say that word with me, discerning. People who are discerning are able to read or look or, or see the world or listen and discern between truth and fiction. They're, they're able to discern between right and wrong. They're able to discern between someone who's trying really hard to be objective and someone who, like the neo-atheist movement, right from a very subjective perspective with an agenda in mind. So here's principle number one when it comes to science in the Bible that we just learned from talking about naturalistic evolution and applying the Proverbs to it. Here's the principle, eat the fish and spit out the bones. If you're jotting notes down, please write this down, eat the fish and spit out the bones. When you're reading things, when you're having conversations, when you're watching videos on YouTube, because I know a lot of people are like, you know what, I don't like to read, I just like to watch videos on YouTube. Stop that, actually pick up a book. That's beside the point. The point is that when you uh, intake this information, please understand that some of it is really good and some of it is really bad. Some of it is really productive, some of it is counterproductive. And we have to be people who are discerning so that we can eat the fish and spit out the bones as we filter things through a biblical Christian worldview, and we'll get to that one in a minute. 
On the other side of things, what we have is a view that I will call the strict biblical literalist view. What people on this side do is their entire worldview is filled up by this statement. The Bible is to be taken literally. Everything in the Bible is to be taken literally. There's no metaphor. There's no figurative stuff. Everything is to be taken literally. But the problem with this view is when you come across a passage that maybe isn't meant to be taken literally. For example, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes this. He says that the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Watch my hands now. Here's us on the world, on the globe, the earth. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. This verse, taken literally, caused people for a very, very long time to espouse a geocentric universe. That means that they would say the earth is the center of the universe and the sun moves around the earth. Earth. So anytime you introduce scientific discovery, namely Copernicus and Galileo, this view doesn't hold water because you've taken things so literally and been so strict with that that the view isn't flexible. Anytime you introduce scientific discovery or some of the things that might help us understand the Bible more, these folks jettison uh, any kind of scientific discovery and then the strict biblical literalist view does not hold water water because science is introduced to it and undermines it. It's very, very interesting that even theologians like Martin Luther and John Calvin, who I like very much and we owe a lot to them in history, listen to Copernicus and listen to Galileo when they said the earth is not the center of the universe, the sun is the center of the universe, and Luther and Calvin called them heretics. Look what Luther wrote about Copernicus. He says, there was mention of a certain astrologer. He's talking about Nicholas Copernicus. You can just call him Nick if you want. Who wanted to prove, here's what he wanted to prove, that the earth moves and not the sky, the sun, and the moon. This would be as if somebody were riding on a cart or a ship and imagine that he was standing still while the earth and the trees were moving. He says, Copernicus' theory is absurd. He goes on. He says, even in these things that are thrown into disorder, he says, I believe the Holy Scripture. For Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. So he's suggesting the sun was moving. Joshua commanded it to stand still. It stopped moving and then started again. He's saying, I take Ecclesiastes literally. The sun rises and sets and hastens back to the place where it rises. Now, if you were to put Galileo and Luther in a room, hypothetically speaking, this would be Galileo's very quippy response to Luther. And I love it. Watch. The Holy Ghost intended, us how to go to, intended to teach us how to go to heaven not how the heavens go. <laughs> the purpose of the scripture and the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to teach us uh, about God and about his will for us uh, rather than teaching us how the heavens go and who moves where and when and what. That's scientific discovery that helps us understand that. So principle number two when it comes to the origins debate and when it comes to science in the scripture is this. Always take the Bible seriously. Sometimes take the Bible literally. 
always take the Bible seriously. That's one of the pros of this view over here. These folks take the Bible very, very seriously. But when they take it literally, exclusively literally, we get into problems very, very quickly. If you take a strictly biblical literalist view, then feel free to join this conference that's coming up in November called the Flat Earth International Conference in 2018. It's in Denver, Colorado. These people are all biblical literalists, and they believe that the earth is flat because they've taken the Bible very, very literally. In fact, Jason Rainville, who played guitar this morning, I think he's going to this conference. Uh, as a matter of fact, no, it's not true. That's not true. As thousands of people get together and say that science is a bunch of hocus pocus, when in reality, science helps us understand the scripture. Now, I want to quote to you two very conservative, extremely conservative, modern theologians, Christian theologians, who talk about the ways that science and scripture interact. And then we're going to go back and apply them to Ecclesiastes. The first one is R.C. Sproul. He wrote this. He said, both Calvin and Luther, we just talked about this, rejected Copernicus as a heretic in the 16th century. I don't know anybody in Orthodox Christianity today who's pleading for geocentricity. That is to say, the earth is the center of the universe. <laughs> Apparently, he didn't know about the conference coming up. Um, do you? Do you know anybody? He goes on. He says, in that case, the church has said, now listen closely, look, we misinterpreted the teaching of the Bible with respect to the solar system. And thank you, scientists, for correcting our misunderstanding. And so I think we can learn from non-believing scientists who are studying natural revelation. They may get a better sense of the truth from their study of natural revelation than I get from ignoring natural revelation. So I have a high view of natural revelation is what I'm saying. Wayne Grudem, another very conservative Christian theologian, wrote this. He said, we should never fear but always welcome any new facts that may be discovered in any legitimate area of human research or study. So instead of like Luther and Calvin saying, that's science and, and we're going to ignore that and, and argue against that, here's, here's where we would stand. We would say that science illuminates God's purpose in Scripture. If you're writing down notes, write this down. Science illuminates God's purpose in Scripture. Grudem would go on in that very quote and say, any new facts that we might discover in scientific revelation would confirm the authenticity and accuracy of the Scripture. Science illuminates. It helps us understand God's purpose. So let's take Ecclesiastes 1, for example. Ecclesiastes 1, again, says the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Now, is Solomon trying to make a scientific statement here about which planet orbits around which one? No, no. What's he saying? He's saying same day over and over again. It's the same thing. Sun goes up, sun comes down. Sun goes up, sun comes down. And we still call it sunrise and sunset even though the sun's not moving at all. And so that's how science illuminates, scientific discovery illuminates God's purpose in Scripture is because it helps us understand more and more what God is up to in the Bible as he teaches us how to know him better and better. So a strictly biblical literalist view is an untenable view, in my opinion, because it ignores scientific discovery. That's difficult for me. So I've said that a naturalistic evolutionary view, atheistic certainly, an agnostic view certainly, are not biblical views. That's pretty easy. And then a strictly biblical literalist view ignores science to the point that I think it's untenable, too difficult for me to espouse that view. So here's what I'm going to suggest, is that there are a couple of views 
within the middle here that don't break down, that don't fall apart. So here's my question for you. How is it that I can get both candles and water into my jar? What do I do first? Candles. I got to get my big stuff in first, don't I? I got to get my three big things in first. Then I can take my water. And now my worldview will hold water. In fact, it's going to be really, really pretty and smell like fresh linens. Because these candles, candles say they smell like fresh linens. I want you to know... That for this illustration, I hope it's meaningful because I had to go to Michael's to make it happen. Have you ever been to Michael's? Oh, my gosh. It's like a craft fair threw up in there. It's the worst. It's like, why do you need so many gourds? I don't understand this. But I had to go to Michael's to get this. So if I can get my three big rocks in, my three candles in, the big things in, then my worldview will stand up to the test of time, and it will fall within the realm of Christian orthodoxy and biblical Christianity. So if you're taking notes, again, if you're jotting notes down, let's jot this principle down. My friend Marion Dart has said this over and over and over. In fact, if you just hit the play button on Marion Dart, this is what comes out. And I love it. It's extremely applicable to what we're talking about this morning. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. When we're reading Genesis 1 through 3, there is a main thing. God has got a purpose in Genesis 1 through 3. And when we get off the beaten track and start talking about things that aren't God's purpose there, the scripture looks back at us and goes, I'm not a scientific textbook. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. You have got to keep the main thing the main thing. And so when it comes to other scriptures that you might read, where you feel as though science and the Bible are competing fields of study, remind yourself, what's the main thing? Because the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? What is the main thing? And there, is, there are three main things when it comes to uh, the scripture in terms of the creation account in Genesis 1 through 3. And I think what John Wesley said is so applicable to those three main things. John Wesley wrote this. He said, the scriptures were written not to gratify our curiosity, but to lead us to God. Don't you love that? Like God didn't write the scriptures because we're like, I want to know everything. He's like, oh, good, I'll tell you everything. Right? That's not what he's up to. He wants to introduce himself to us and talk to us about who he is and his character and what he's up to in the world. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the three main things about the origins of the universe that the Bible teaches. And we're going to talk about a couple of different interpretations of Genesis 1 through 3 that fall within the realm of, of Christian orthodoxy. Main thing number one, if you're jotting this down, is this, that God created. God created. Write that down if you're writing anything down. God created. This is affirmed all throughout the scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is he, the Bible says, who made the earth by his power and who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. In John, John's gospel, he writes this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he says the same thing twice in two different ways. And I love this, just so it sinks in. All things were made through him. All things. I looked that word up in the Greek, and that means all. It does. Interestingly enough, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What's John saying? That God created. 
God created. So if you come across a view regarding the origins of the universe that does not allow for divine intervention, that does not allow for theism, you can immediately say that that is not a biblical view because God created. That's our first big rock that we need to get into our worldview. Big rock number two. God created all things for a purpose, and that purpose is his glory. That purpose is his glory. There's a view over here on the other side, close to naturalistic evolution, that would be called non-teleological evolution. I know that's a big word. It just means evolution without a purpose. So the view would say that the world and the universe are just here by chance and by accident, and there is no purpose to them. We would, again, uh, uh, reject a non-teleological evolutionary view because it does not account for God's purpose, his design in creation. And his design is that he created it for his glory, created it for a purpose. All over the scripture, this is affirmed, for by all things, or for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, say this word with me, for him. They point to him. They point to Jesus. They were created for a purpose. Uh, Paul writes this in Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, that's two words that mean his glory, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, creation, what we can see and experience and observe from a scientific perspective, points to the glory of God. God says this in Isaiah about mankind. He says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. He created us and all things for his glory. That's big rock number two. If you're jotting down notes, again, here we go. Big rock number three that we've got to include within an orthodox Christian worldview is this. God created all things for his glory and man in his image. God created human beings, male and female, in his image. Again, affirmed all throughout the scripture. God said, let us create man in our image after our likeness. And once he said that, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created a male and female. He created them. This is why Christians have such a high view of life and a high view of humans. This is why we do charitable things around the world. This is why we come to people's aid and pray for hurricanes in North and South Carolina right now. Because we have such a high view of human life. This is why we would say that murder is wrong. Not because God came up with some arbitrary rule. But he said murder is wrong because he made man in his own image. God says whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image three big rocks here we go God created all things for his glory and man in his image that's the main thing and the main thing is keep the main thing the main thing so here's what I'm going to do I want to talk about three different views of the origins of the universe that keep the main thing the main thing in their book called Doctrine, What Christians Should Believe, Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears suggest that there are six, I think there are more, but six different interpretations of the creation accounts in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 that do keep the main thing the main thing and fall within the realm of human, ortho, uh, human orthodoxy, fall within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. And when I use that word orthodoxy, I don't mean capital O like the denomination. I mean lowercase o like right thinking, right Christian 
thinking, three views, and they are, in no particular order, new earth creation. You might hear it described as young earth creation. The young earth creationists would say that God created the world and the universe and mankind in six literal 24-hour days. And the earth is not billions of years old, as science would suggest. The earth is only thousands of years old. Where they get that number is they take all the genealogies in the scripture and they add up all those numbers. You ever come across those genealogies in the Bible where it says this person was this person's father and they lived for this many years. This person was this person's father and they lived for this many years. The new earth creationists would add up all those things. This person begat this person who begat this person who begat this person. Person. I think there was a, actually a person named Begat in there. So Begat, Begat, Begat. You know, it's it crazy. So they would add up all that and they would say the earth is new. The earth is relatively young, between six and 15,000 years old. So you might ask them, well, how do you account for the science that says the earth is billions of years old? Carbon dating, fossil records, etc. The young earth creationists would respond in one of three ways. First, they would say that there's a contingency of science, that science isn't always right, that science changes sometimes. And that is probably going to change over time, and the Bible stays true. I love the high view of the scripture when it comes to new earth of creation. Second thing they would say is that if you take into account a global flood, as recorded in uh, the story of Noah and his ark, you might have heard of that, then it would change the nature of the earth such that it looked old even though it wasn't, because that would be such a globally catastrophic event. The third way that they would account for it is mature creation. In other words, the or the the world was created with the appearance of age, but not with actual age. The world and the universe were created with the appearance of age, like it looks like it took a long time for the Rio Grande to carve the Grand Canyon, but that's not actually true. God just created it with the appearance of age. And now the answer to my riddle. <laughs> a man walked up to a couple, said, you must be Adam, you must be Eve. How do you know? No belly buttons. Adam and Eve were never born, right? They'd have no need for a belly button. That's why everybody has to be naked in the joke, right? So in other words, the new earth creationists would say, God created Adam and Eve with the appearance of age. Why wouldn't he create all things with the appearance of age? That's a new earth creationist view. The pros of this view is a high view of scripture, and they understand that the Bible is the trump card in any and all situations. The difficulty here is that science seems to undermine, and I, has, and I stress, seems to undermine some of the views that the new earth creationist takes. On the other end of this spectrum is a view called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution, and for some of you, the hairs on the back of your neck are already bristling, and didn't we tell you that this might get awkward, all right? This might get awkward. Awkward. Couple of caveats here before we talk about theistic evolution. One, theistic evolution as a theory of the origins of the universe and naturalistic evolution as a worldview are drastically different things. When someone says that the world, all that we can see is just material things, they can't take a very high view of human life, and then when we die, we just go into oblivion and there's no purpose in the world. The theistic evolutionists would say that God superintended and was involved in the evolutionary process from beginning to end. We first heard about theistic evolution at the end of the 20th century. More recently, it was popularized by a man named Francis Collins, who wrote a book called The Language of God. Francis Collins is a devout Christ follower. He was also hired by Bill Clinton. Do you remember Bill Clinton used to be the prime minister? Remember that guy? Okay, so... So Clinton hired Francis Collins to map the human DNA. Francis Collins and his team, 
achieved. They succeeded in mapping the human DNA. He's no dummy. (laughs) So he espoused for this view that said that God superintended and was involved in the evolutionary process. So against non-teleological evolution that would say the earth has no purpose and the the mankind has no purpose, the universe has no purpose, uh, Collins and other theistic evolutionists would say that the earth and the universe do have a purpose and God was intimately involved in that process. And you might think that that's a very new view, but even some of the early church fathers left room in their theology for theistic evolution, namely Augustine and Origen. You may have heard of those guys. Guys like John Wesley, who wrote a hundred years before Darwin showed up on the scene, wrote this, God created also every plant of the field, not indeed actually, but before it sprung up in the earth. That's a quote from scripture. That is potentially that God programmed into creation a potential for it to develop over time. Thomas Aquinas wrote in the 13th century, he wrote this. He said, all things were not distinguished and adorned together. All things that God created were not distinguished and adorned together, not from a want of power on God's part, Uh, as requiring time in which to work. In other words, God didn't like say, man, this is going to take billions of years. (laughs) Like he could have done it in a short period of time, but he didn't. Why? That due order might be observed in the instituting of the world. I'm not saying that this is the only view. I'm I'm also not saying this is my view. I'm just saying that this view from a Christian theological perspective predates Darwin by hundreds, even thousands of years. The, the, the difficulty with the uh, theistic evolutionary view is that a couple, there, there are probably many difficulties, but a couple that I've come across personally is this. One is it seems pretty critical to Jesus' theology that Adam was a historical individual, the historicity of Adam. In my opinion, what I've read about theistic evolution, they have not satisfactorily accounted for the historicity of Adam. Second is it, there's kind of a, a leaning towards a non-teleological evolution. We have to be careful not to lean over there because if we lean over there, then we don't get our three big rocks in first. We don't keep the main thing the main thing. So interestingly, just after Darwin published his Origin of the Species at the end of the night or the middle of the 19th century, some f- really conservative Christian theologians, one named B.B. Warfield at Princeton Seminary at the time, to whom we owe the modern doctrine of the inerrancy. It's not a modern doctrine, but the fact that we still hold to it. uh, it, We have B.B. Warfield to thank in large part for the inerrancy, infallibility, authority, and historicity of the scripture. B.B. Warfield wrote this about evolution. He said, to adopt any form that does not permit God freely to work apart from the law, to intervene in human history, or that does not allow miraculous intervention in the giving of the soul and creating Eve, will entail a great reconstruction of Christian doctrine and a very great lowering of the detailed authority of the Bible. If we don't get those things right, then we've got to change Christian doctrine drastically. Too much for me, B.B. Warfield says. But if we condition the theory by allowing the constant oversight of God in the whole process and his occasional supernatural interference for the production of new beginnings by actual output of creative force, producing something new, i.e. something not included even in posse in the pre- preceding conditions, we may hold to the modified theory of evolution and be Christians in the ordinary orthodox sense. Again, I'm not affirming evolution. What I'm saying is that even our church fathers,
fathers, even those who are much smarter than me, would say, if you modify the view and account for God miraculously intervening in the course of human history, then you may hold to evolution and be a Christian in the ordinary orthodox sense. Uh, one thing that I would suggest to you, if you're writing things down, here's a big principle that you can apply all across the board, is to avoid the slippery slope fallacy. Avoid the slippery slope fallacy. Here's one thing, especially when we ta start talking about those types of things, that people say, well, the minute you don't take the Bible literally, six literal 24-hour days, you know, 12,000 years old, like if the minute you stop taking it literally, if it becomes figurative, it becomes kind of to help us understand those things, then all of a sudden you're going to say that Jesus wasn't a literal person. You know, all of a sudden you're going to say there wasn't a literal resurrection and we're going to be on a grease slide to hell, hell, hell. And that's not true. That's not how that works. If I told Amy, I love you to the moon and back, she could say, you've never been to the moon, therefore you don't love me. And that would be silly, right? Like, it's, it's to help her understand my love for her. So avoid the slippery slope fallacy as we talk about these things. Finally, and this is the kind of this third view, and it's the most middle ground view. I have no statistics or data to back this up, but in my experience and estimation, this is the view that most Orthodox Christians, most conservative Christians would hold today. And it's old earth creation. Old earth creation. God created all things that we see. He created ex nihilo, that means out of nothing. But the earth is billions of years old. So you might ask an old earth creationist, hey, uh, so what does that mean about six literal 24-hour days and the genealogies in Scripture? How does that all work? There are a couple of theories, a couple of interpretations. One is called day-age theory. So what some old earth creationists would say, not all but some, is that the day that's mentioned in Genesis 1 is not a 24-hour period but an epoch, a, a, a season, an extended period of time. That Hebrew word is eom, and it could mean a 24-hour period, and it could mean extended period of time. So they would say it was an extended period of time. The second thing that some old earth creationists uh, suggest is gap theory. What they would say is there was a moment where God pulled all of the material together in order to create... And that was a billions of years process. And then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, he began to organize that material and put it in different places. And those were six literal 24-hour days. In other words, there's a gap between when God pulled all the material together and when he organized it. If you read Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was what? Without form and void. See, that's where that gap theory comes in. There was chaos before, but all things were there. All the material was there, and then God put order to it, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. That's what some old earth creationists would say. Third, some old earth creationists would say that uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is a literary framework. It's not meant to be taken literally or even figuratively, really. It's rabbinic meditation literature to help us point to God, so they're not meant to be six literal 24-hour days with a 12,000-year-old earth. You ever see those old micro machines commercials with the auctioneer, like micro machine guys? That's what I felt like this morning. Got to drink from a fire hose when you talk about science in the Bible. A couple of last comments and then we'll be done. Uh, we've rejected a naturalistic evolutionary view. And we've said from a scientific perspective, it's very, very difficult to go to the extreme of a strictly literalist uh, view. 
What we said is there are multiple views that kind of live in this middle ground instead of American politics. We're now in Canadian politics, right? Um, so multiple views that kind of live here in this middle ground that fall within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. At least that's what Driscoll's and Brashears suggest in their book. So you might be asking me, okay, but Luke, well, what's your view? What's your view? Anybody thinking that? What's your view? Okay, good. It's up here on the screen. That's none of your beeswax. That really is what it is. Sorry, did that come across rude? Let me, I'll, say, I'll say it a different way. That's for me to know and you to find out is what that is. Okay? This is the real answer. Those are jokes. That's, this is the real answer. I don't know. I don't. All I know is i got to get three big rocks in. God created all things for his glory and man in his own image. And I'll be honest with you. The older I get and the longer I walk with God, the more comfortable I am with uncertainty. The more comfortable I am saying the secret things belong to God. The more comfortable I am when God responds to Job and says, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? And my response to God would be, no, 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 sir, I was not. So I don't know. But I do know what the Bible affirms is that God created all things for his glory and man in his image. Those are my three big rocks. That's what I have to get in. For those of you who have already decided on what you think of the origins of the earth and science and the Bible, I would just ask you to fight for the unity in the body. If this is causing division between you and somebody else, again, please stop it, change, because what we know is that unity in the body of Christ is so, so important for God. There are other uh, views that fall within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. We can have lively, passionate debates about this stuff. That's okay. That's fun. But when it begins to drive a wedge between you and somebody else in the body, then we've gone too far. For the undecided, I would suggest to you over the next few days, we're going to post a bunch of suggested reading material on our Facebook page. So jump on Facebook, uh, follow us, friend us, whatever that is on Facebook. I don't even know what it is. But there's going to be some reading material of people that take up each of these views. Some that take up a theistic evolution view. Some that take up an old earth view, a young earth view, gap theory, day age theory, all kinds of stuff. Pick up one of those books. Read about it. Take a look at it. Don't be afraid if you're undecided that it's going to smell smash your faith, or that it's going to smash scientific evidence, and all of a sudden you're going to be a Christian. Like, don't be afraid of that stuff. You can have those two things together. They're not competing views or even parallel views. They're inextricably bound. And for the skeptical, I would just ask that you walk away thinking, you know what? There are some Christian positions, Orthodox Christian positions, that take into account scientific theory and that are intellectually honest positions, and it's something that I might be comfortable with. And so I'll continue to investigate the claims of Christ, knowing that from a Christian worldview, I've got to kit those three big rocks in first. Didn't I tell you it was going to go fast? I didn't lie. So that's it. That's good. Let's pray. We'll close. God, we stand back in awe of all that you've created from the expanse and the vastness of the universe to the intricacy of a butterfly and the atom and molecules and the beauty and majesty. And so our response, even in this moment in song, is how great thou art. When I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Your power throughout the universe is on display. God, you created all things for your glory and man in your image. And for that reason, we can worship you today. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Hey, let's stand and sing and worship in response.